Welcome to the Doodle Kisses podcast, an extension of doodlekisses.com. I'm your host, Adina Pearson. Doodlekisses.com is the social network for Labradoodle and Golden Doodle dog owners, wannabe owners, and the doodle curious. The goal of this podcast is to provide education, entertainment, and connect with our Doodle Kisses members on the topic of dogs in general. It's been a while since our last published podcast episode. We're going to take it a little bit at a time. If we get great feedback and support, we'll keep going. But if it seems that doodle owners aren't into it, then we might not continue. It's up to you. You can support this podcast financially via our GoFundMe page or simply by giving us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help tremendously because they encourage podcast apps to show our show to more and more listeners. Right now, there aren't too many dog-focused programs, so please give us a review. Today, I'm excited to bring you my interview with veterinary behaviorist, Dr. Finucci. In this interview, we discuss the difference between a training issue and a true behavior problem that requires a behaviorist's intervention. We discuss the importance of recognizing your dog as a dog and not a human. We talk about separation anxiety, leash aggression, resource guarding, jealous behavior, like when dogs push each other out of the way for attention from their owner, why puppies shouldn't leave their littermates and mom too soon, and the doctor's surprising answer to what counts as too soon, and much more. So tune in and we'll get started. everybody from Doodle Kisses. This is Adina. And today I have an expert to interview. I've got Dr. Fanucci, who is a clinical instructor at Washington State University, and she directs the behavior services department. Um, So she's generously generously giving of her time to answer some questions about her job and her work and answer some behavior topics that I know people are interested in hearing more about. So first, I just want to ask about you and dogs or you and pets in general. Do you have any dogs or pets of your own? Yes, I have. Right now, I have two cats. Um, I had another, another cat and a dog that passed away last year. So now I'm left with two cats only. But I am a dog and cat person. I don't have a preference. <laughs> That's rare, right? Usually, we have a very strong <laughs> divide. Right. I, uh, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> what is your history with dogs growing up? Did you have them growing up, or is that something new? My entire life, yeah. When I was born, we already had dogs in the house. So I do not remember a time in my life where I did not have dogs, except for now, which is pretty recent. But I've had dogs my entire life, pretty much. Awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have any experience with Labradoodle or Golden Doodle dogs at the? You know, I, yeah, I mean, my experience with them is from work. I've never owned one myself, but I have uh, many of them that are my patients. Mm-hmm. So that's what I can talk about the patient side, uh, not necessarily that I am a specialist in a breed specifically. I, and you know, I like all breeds. I don't have. Um, maybe a couple favorites depending on the environment and the kind of owner, but I, you know, I can't say I am Pitbull fan or a Golden Doodle fan or, you know, I, I don't have a preference for breeds in general. I, I like them all for all that they can be. 
Mm-hmm. Great. And so in your position, you probably deal with behavior problems. So probably every dog you see is like a representation of a problem in some way, right? Like yeah. you see the Labradoodles and Golden Doodles that have problems. Um, yeah. When it comes to problematic behaviors, not just typical, you know, dog that hasn't had training, um, but things like separation, anxiety, aggression, resource guarding, etc. How much do you feel is nature like that is just part of the dog itself that happened to walk in versus nurture or the way it was raised as a young puppy or the way the owners are kind of interacting in the dynamics there that's that's an important question Uh, so I think it's important for us to point out that there is a huge difference between training issues so lack of training or inappropriate training that a specific dog received growing up versus a mental disorder, which characterizes generalized anxiety, separation anxiety, uh, aggression-related disorders. So I think a lot of dogs these days get misdiagnosed. So they are dogs that have difficulty or lack of training, and then people label them, oh, this dog is anxious. So there's a lot of mislabeling of dogs that don't really have the disorder. Uh, I don't get to see uh, the lack of training very often. I get to see the actual cases that are bad and they're really bad. So I think I'm biased that way. Mm-hmm. I don't see happy puppies. I see dogs that have severe issues and it's been bad for this, this dog's entire life. So I see a lot more of the disorder. But there is a distinction and it's important that people don't confuse that, don't call a dog anxious just because it doesn't perform well in a certain activity or training because of unrealistic expectations from people, from the owner. Mm -hmm. And I want to follow up in a little bit about anxiety um, because I think that can be a really big deal for for a lot of people. Um, Were you always interested in veterinary science? How did you decide on your career? Um, I think I decided it very early in life. I don't remember when, but according to my mom, I said I was going to be a vet when I was like about three years old. So I have to believe her because I don't have memories of wanting to be anything else. And growing up with animals and, you know, all animals, I mean, I've had frogs as pets, spiders as pets, snakes as pets, dogs. It's, I didn't really have issues with any specific species. Mm-hmm. So, I think I always wanted to be a vet. (laughs) A true animal lover from the beginning. I I am. (laughs) I think that's so, you hear about that. I've always wanted, you know, since I was little, I wanted to be this thing that I am. And it's so rare to meet people, you know, who actually (laughs) have been able to do that. I know my kids change careers every year about what they're going (laughs) to be when they grow up. So um, tell us exactly what you do. So what is the difference between what a trainer does and what you do in your position, um, you know, where is there maybe overlap, if, if at all? Yeah. So a trainer is someone, a certified trainer, right? Because there's a lot of people there that, that self-entitled trainer behaviorist and all of those things just because they raise dogs their entire lives, so they qualify as trainers. And that's not true. So a certified trainer, a CPDT certified trainer, is someone who understands principles of learning, principles of psychology, and can apply that um, effectively in training and teaching dogs to perform a specific task. 
uh, a behave or a vet behaviorist or someone in the veterinary field that they has training formal training in behavior is someone who was qualified to address mental disorders in the animals to treat disorders so you know there's it's like a difference between a psychiatrist someone who has medical training and can treat disorders in general versus someone who works with rehabilitation only but don't have the medical training the, the med school you know uh, um, kind of title mm -hmm. so there is a difference um, I, I am not a, a certified trainer I use training to treat my patients so training is a huge component of what I do um, but I am treating the whole patient so medical disorders that can cause behavior problems behavior problems that cause medical disorders and that that's what I am treating I can treat them with training with environmental management and with pharmacological intervention which a trainer would not be able to do correct yeah so what would be an example of a behavioral problem that leads to a medical problem uh, so obsessive compulsive disorders can um, lead to lots of medical problems. So excessive licking of body parts can cause, uh, uh, you know, certain dermatological con conditions. Um, there is an obsessive compulsive, compulsive disorder called PICA, which mm -hmm. is ingestion of non-food items that can cause obstructions and other GI-related issues. Um, Self-mutilation. So obsessive compulsive that leads to self-mutilation. So animals that eat body parts or oh. chew themselves to the point that, yeah, that they are bleeding. Uh, and I've had several patients with this kind of condition. Uh, separation anxiety can cause them to break mm -hmm. teeth or to perforate their eyes um, when they have a panic attack. So, uh, you know, we can have secondary uh, medical disorders in cats, for example, just, I mean, the topic is not cats today, but just to mention that there's a behavior condition uh, that causes a medical disorder called FIC, which is feline interstitial cystitis. So it's severe anxiety in cats can actually lead to blockage. So formation wow. of plugs that block the urinary tract and they can't urinate anymore and the bladder just expands. So there's, there's a lot of psychological conditions that can cause disorders in the rest of the body. Wow, that's amazing. So mm -hmm. in the case of OCD, where a dog is licking his paws, what would be like the, the way that is determined whether this dog has an allergy and they're trying so hard to like, you know, it's itchy mm -hmm. versus an OCD component that's making mm -hmm. them do it? Or does it sometimes start with the itching and then develop into a OCD? Yeah. That, that it can be either you know both way mm -hmm. both ways so if there's a, a, an itchiness or you know pruritus component to the disorder uh, normally it's not just one area of the body that itches so oh. it, it, they itch all over the place there's a seasonal component there's an environmental component that we can isolate when it's the specific licking of a body part they normally target specific part like either their paws or the tail or the flank and that's the area that they go to all the time especially when they're frustrated and not feeling well so when they're asked to train and they don't want to train so they redirect to the body part like okay I don't want to do this I'm going to chew on my paw instead because that makes me feel better feel like I'm doing something or out of boredom uh, so those are the things that can trigger that kind of behavior okay and it gets to the point where they self-mutilate where they cause injuries oh I can't picture that <laughs> so how would a dog owner know so they're struggling with a the behavior um, 
And how do they know whether this is just, I just need to do more practice and training um, Mm -hmm. to fix this versus Mm -hmm. I need to seek out a behaviorist to Mm -hmm. evaluate what's going on. Yeah. So when, you know, normally the red flags that I tell, you know, people to recognize is, so this is a dog that training is not working anymore. So you've done the extensive training and it's not working. Uh, This is an animal that is um, agitated most of the time, that has trouble sleeping at night, or has eating disorders, or suddenly starts eating feces, or starts doing behaviors that are not common, that are not normal for that patient. Uh, Those are like huge red flags for there is a behavior disorder here that I'm not identifying and I need to look for more help. Okay. And what are, what would you say are the top three problems that you see the most in your practice? In dogs, the number one problem is aggression related disorder. Then uh, number two would be the um, probably anxiety disorders where mostly separation uh, anxiety. And then number three would be generalized anxiety. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so I'm going to start there with some questions. Um, as far as separation anxiety, mm-hmm. where would be that line between a dog who's just lonely or wants you to pay attention to it versus true separation anxiety? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, most dogs, they are attached to their owners. So when they are not in the presence of the owner, they have some level of separation distress, but that should be temporary and they should adapt to it because the owner always comes back, right? Mm-hmm. So some dogs learn that. When they cannot be okay being alone for short periods of time, I mean, if they can't do short, then they can't do long. I mean, that's pretty obvious. But when they start displaying behaviors like excessive vocalization, salivation, pacing, panting, uh, destruction of the exit areas, which is a huge red flag for separation anxiety, uh, then you know really well that it's not just boredom. The behavior only happens when the owner is not around or is not, not at, you know, at home or not close to the dog. Excessive clinginess. So these are clinging animals. They can't do anything else without the owner being present. They need coaching for eating. They need someone to play with them all the time. So those are the big things that you want to look for. That's when you need help. And preferably don't wait until it gets bad to the point that they chew on your whole door And now we're going to look for help because, you know, now it's bad enough. So normally people make that mistake. They wait until it's horrible. And now we're going to look for help because Mm. they missed all the other red flags that were there before. Yeah. And in the meantime, the dog learns that it is horrible and it gets, you know, more and more anxiety provoking. Um, None of my dogs have had true separation anxiety, but one of them, the one that's nine years old now, a few years ago, she broke out of her crate mm-hmm. went during 4th of July while we were gone. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't do that typically. Mm-hmm. And then when we were visiting a family that didn't allow dogs in the house, we had her in a crate in the garage and she broke out of that. So it seems mm-hmm. very um, specific to a situation. Otherwise, mm-hmm. she's fine being left alone. Um, so I'm wondering for dogs who have true separation anxiety, is there hope for them to be cured, so to speak, so that, and by cure, I mean, is there hope for owners to eventually be able to let their dog be home alone for a couple hours and know that the dog's going to be okay and calm and, mm-hmm. and not um, anxious the whole time? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, there is hope, but not for a cure. So none of the anxiety or mental disorders in animals, such as generalized anxiety, separation anxiety, have a cure because we can't really cure anxiety, right? right. Anxiety is not just uh, training related or fear of being alone. It's, it's a hormonal imbalance and brain activity. So we can't cure that. Now, can we treat it effectively and manage that patient? Are the animal to the point that it's comfortable, you know, performing? Yes, we can. And can we get them 100% better? No, because that would be a cure. But we can get them 80% better. So I, I can live with 80% improvement. I just can't live with no improvement at all, right? Yeah. So yes, there is hope. They can get to a point where they can stay alone for up to four, six hours maybe. But that takes time and a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And does that usually require medication during those periods of time? Yes, for the majority of the cases. And is that usually anti-anxiety or anti-anxiety meds typically? Uh, or? We normally use, depending on the severity of the case, we use antidepressants combined with anxiolytics. Mm -hmm. So we use combination treatment and the drugs alone are not going to do it. So we need to do environmental enrichment. We need to do behavior modification and we need to do medication. Okay. And is the medication something that they typically have to stay on indefinitely or does that, most you know? Of the time. Okay. Yeah. Good most of the time they have to stay on it for life, mm -hmm. especially when it's severe. Okay. Do you deal with um, resource guarding at all? Cases yes. of, re okay. Uh, yeah, can you say a few words about that? Like some of the things that you notice and maybe some of not giving a treatment plan, of course, mm -hmm. but just generalized about how, how you work with that. Yeah. So the strategy with resource guarding is to the first thing that we want to do with that patient is teach, you know, teach the owners to teach the dog that guarding is not necessary anymore because, you know, we're not taking anything away from you. So there's no reason for you to guard. So a lot of the behavior modification uh, component of it is retraining that dog to think differently about resources right? Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of trading exercises. So you really want this thing here that you like, well, we're going to trade by this one here. And then you trade around and then you never take that item away. You let the dog understand that if it's willing to give up for a few seconds or a minute, then it can have it back again because we're not taking it away. So that's like most of the resource guarding training component. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It takes work. Uh, and patients from the owners, but it can be trained out of the dog. Is, are there hypotheses about why resource guarding begins in the first place? Is that also more of a, a brain chemical thing, or is it more something they've learned? Is it a learned behavior, or is it nature for them? Yeah. So uh, there is the possibility that there are tendencies. Some dogs will start guarding from the very beginning, uh, but it's really hard to identify that because we don't allow dogs these days to stay with their siblings where they learn about social behaviors and how to be socially appropriate. Uh, they don't, and they don't also stay with their moms long enough. So uh, puppies are separated from moms and siblings way too early. So they don't learn those things. They don't learn how not to guard. But you can see guarding very early in some puppies, especially when they're nursing on mom. Mm -hmm. They won't fight dispute over, you know, that opportunity <laughs> to nurse. So you can see that that tendency really early in dogs. We just don't allow them to work it out and learn how to be social. So then you end up with a dog that is a resource guarder and the 
object of, of the garden can be anything. It can be food, boat, toys, places, location, people. They can guard whatever, you know. So a resource garden, there's one theory that was presented by Parker um, a long time ago that is uh, it's called the resource holding potential. So gardening depends, or gardening will occur depending on the value of the item. So you and I value things differently, right? Some things have an emotional component to you. So you have that favorite teddy bear or your favorite mug or something. And then if you lose that object, you get anxious because you lost it, right? So you kind of grieve that, grieve that loss. So uh, you will guard that object depending on the value that you give to it and also depending on the emotional state your emotional state that day so maybe some today i value my favorite pen a lot and if i lose my pen i'm gonna cry but tomorrow depending on how i'm feeling you know it was just a pen uh it's not that important so there's a lot of things that can affect um how and what and when they're going to guard something there are dogs that people say like oh i don't know why he guards it but some days he guards the ball and some days he doesn't well, it depends on how much value that ball has that day, depending on that how that dog is feeling. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of nuances to it. Um, what about pack status as far as like the dog's desire to dominate a situation versus the value of the object? Do you see that come into play too? Like if the dog feels they need to be in charge? Yeah, there's there's a a, a big dynamic there's a um, a complex dynamic going on with dogs, especially dogs that live with other dogs. Um, this pack mentality is is a misconcept that is out there. Dogs they don't live in packs the way wolves do. So a pack is a family of wolves. So they are related genetically related, and they are born and they grow up. They have hierarchy within the pack. That's the wolf structure. Dogs are not like wolves. Even dogs in the wild, not domestic dogs, even less, but dogs in the wild don't live in that structure. They don't hang out in a pack for long periods of time. So once they grow and become adults, they go after mating opportunities. Uh, The females don't form pairs like wolves do. The dog, the female dog is a promiscuous and she will copulate with several males and, you know, have puppies who knows she doesn't know who the father is. So it's a completely different dynamic. But people want to treat dogs as pack animals. And a lot of what goes wrong comes from that unrealistic relationship and expectation from dogs. Okay. And I want to ask real quick, because you mentioned um, puppies are leaving their litter mates mm-hmm. too soon. What is too soon in your opinion? Uh, what people are doing these days is like five, six weeks of age, they're separated. They're not allowed to nurse for longer. And that's a really, really early. I mean, they're newborns at that stage. So they yes. barely opened their eyes and started moving around and nursing. So these dogs don't learn how to be social with other dogs. So you see a lot of reactivity later on in life. They see a dog and they freak out, but they never really had the opportunity to play with other dogs appropriately, right? Right, Uh, right. Dogs of the same size, of the same, uh, you know, so suddenly you have this uh, four-month-old boxer or golden doodle that you take to a puppy class, and the puppy is like completely disruptive, is like bullying other dogs, has no idea what it's supposed to be to do or 
you know, to be doing with other dogs, wants to mouth everybody. So you see a lot of inappropriate behaviors later on because they never learn how to be dogs in the first place. They're adopted out by people and that's all that they know. It's a human world. Yeah. Okay. So that was my understanding too, that about eight weeks is appropriate. No, no we prefer older. That they stay a lot longer. They how much longer? Be, well, in the ideal world, right, <laughs> it should be at least 12 weeks. Uh-huh. But nobody does that. Yeah, so you don't actually, hear about that at all. Right. No, you don't. So uh, what you want to do is the natural progression of things. So you don't want to separate puppy from mom. You want mom to kick puppy out of the nest, right? Mm -hmm. So when that puppy is old enough, that is like play fighting with the other siblings all the time and tormenting mom to the point that mom is like, you know, she's done disciplining that dog. It's like, okay, I'm done with you. You're ready to move on. Go fan for yourself. So you want to wait for that moment to happen because that's the natural progression of things. Mm -hmm. But it never happens. So they never have that opportunity to be disciplined by mom, mm -hmm. to learn boundaries from mom, and to social play or um, play fight with the siblings, which is where they learn a lot of the self-regulation. Right. And, you, and I think adult dogs tend to be really um, generous with young puppies. And then you're right, like there's a point where they're not going to take that mm -hmm. stuff anymore. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. I've always read and heard eight weeks because that's that time where they can bond with their new family. But I like the idea of puppies, you know, staying with their litter mates for that social reason. Yeah. So now I want to ask about... Um, aggression <laughs> and there's so many different kinds um what do you say would be like the difference between a dog who's truly leash aggressive versus a dog who just pulls and is hyper and like wants to meet everybody and barks like mm -hmm. how would you help someone know that this is leash aggression and this is just a dog that's a little bit hyper and needs some training mm -hmm. yeah the, it, the the leash aggression issue also has different flavors so there's certain situations where a dog can be leash aggressive, but others that when it's not. So a lot of it has to do with how that person is handling that animal. So when they are on a leash, and, and a good literature for uh, pet owners out there uh, is a book called Bat Training System. Have you ever heard of that? Mm -hmm. The no. Bat System. It's called Bat for Behavior Adjustment Training. It was written by Grisha Stewart. Uh, a few years ago, she has two editions of the same book now. It talks a lot about leash reactivity and leash aggression and how to manage that. It's a great, great reading, and it's very reader-friendly. So I recommend it to all of the people out there. But uh, leash aggression, uh, will normally you don't only see leash aggression. Sometimes those dogs, when they're off leash, will be aggressive too. A dog that just wants out of the leash because he wants to go play, just like jumps around, screams, barks really loud, and once it's off leash, it goes play with other dogs. Leash aggression, you will know it's aggression right away because you see a lot of baring teeth, a lot of growling, a lot of confrontational behaviors like staring and, you know, like uh, trying to attack the other dog. That's true leash aggression. It is true that some dogs will only display that one on a leash, and then once they're loose, they don't have that. But that's really, really rare and really risky for you to test that theory. Dog that is showing aggression on a leash should not be off leash because most likely will engage in a fight that you're going to have to break. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can only imagine the consequences of that. Yeah, thank you. 
that is definitely a hard thing to deal with when <laughs> you're just yeah. trying to have a pet dog and go on a walk. Um, let's see, what about window reactiveness? So the dog that anytime someone walks by the house, they just go nuts at the window or maybe even the property line. Um, mm-hmm. Is that a, an issue that a behaviorist needs to deal with or is that something that you think owners can kind of train out of their dog? They can train out of the dog by doing a lot of counter conditioning. But the problem with that, with that is that that kind of reaction is actually normal in dogs. So the, the big issue that I see these days is this unrealistic expectation that we have from dogs these days. We don't want them to be dogs. We want them to be people that are furry and look cute and we can hug all the time, right? <laughs> yes. So, dogs they they have a role they are hardwired to protect the house the environment the people so if i am here i'm an alert animal right i'm hearing noises outside i have to tell my owner my person that there's something outside that is potentially dangerous so that's what dogs are supposed to do hardwired to do and we want to kill that out of dogs we don't understand it because we don't want them to bark when we're watching or a movie, right? Mm-hmm. It's disruptive. Uh, now, is there such thing as excessive barking? Uh, yes, there is. When the stimulus is gone already, there's nothing there, or the intruder is gone, there's not, no reason to bark anymore, but that dog is just barking, 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 barking. And that's probably compulsive barking that it's more related to an anxiety disorder, not necessarily normal behavior. Mm-hmm. So we need to kind of separate, is this amount of barking right now normal because there is a noise outside, then that's normal. Can we uh, tame that behavior so that the dog doesn't have to bark all the time? Yes, we can. And that's when training comes in place and a trainer can train that out of a dog easily. Yeah, I love what you said about us expecting dogs to be, you know, little furry teddy bears and not not be dogs. And I think it's so common these days that we think, you know, people think of dogs that way. It's their children, their little teddy bears, their little like huggy, snuggly things and forget that dogs have dog instincts. And that's what they do is they have a territory and they defend it. And obviously when they bark, the people keep walking away. (laughs) So it works. (laughs) Constant reinforcement all the time. Yes. Constant reinforcement. And I imagine, you know, if my dog was somebody uh, or somebody, if my dog was the type to just lash out at windows, I would try to keep him away from windows if I wasn't home. Just because when you're a passerby, it looks so scary and and it keeps them practicing. Yeah. You can do uh, those like window, uh, frost uh, th- stickers and things that you can attach to the window and kind of decrease the amount of, uh, you know, visual. So you can do that. You can just block the view or, uh, you know, put something cute on the window that limits how much that dog can see outside. There's a lot of things that you can do in the area. Mm-hmm. So let me throw another question at you. I have a member who was curious how to help an older dog who has suddenly developed many fears that she mm-hmm. never had before. Like mm-hmm. in the past, she wasn't afraid of these things and now she's afraid of copy machines and fireworks and will go down to the basement um, and hide in her crate instead of be with the family. Any thoughts about that? Yeah. So aging is very um, interesting as well. So you will notice that some dogs that never had issues before, now that they're aging, they start developing problems. So two possibilities. Either the problem was already there, the dog's entire life, but it was really mild to the point that you never picked up or never really, uh, it's not really a problem, right? So untreated anxieties can get aggravated with age 
or this is like an aging uh, related disorder like dementia or cognitive mm-hmm. dysfunction. So, uh, which reminds me of your dog, your nine-year-old that had that issue at the crate in certain circumstances. So that could be part of dementia as well. So it's important when dogs, you know, reach an older age and they start deve- developing these behavior changes that we rule out what is this anxiety only that we never treated before, or this is a dementia uh, process already that we need to be treating and we are not we're missing a lot of the signs mm-hmm. so it's important to look for behaviors to do a formal assessment for dementia and possibly uh, scanning of the brain the, the brain so imaging to rule out tumors other brain conditions but then you know there's a lot of things that we can do these days to diagnose dementia in dogs and we can diagnose it early if people read the red flags well. Oh, that's so interesting about, I never think of dogs and dementia. Um, So if a dog was diagnosed with dementia, what are the treatment options? Uh, So a dog that does suffer from dementia, there's different types of dementia in dogs, but in general, the medications that we use are um, things, antioxidants to help, you know, with uh, like to help like avoid the formation of free radicals in the brain but we also change their diet. So we use lower protein diets that are rich or they have antioxidants added. And there's definitely medications that we can do antidepressants. Um, there's one, only one uh, medication that has been approved for the use for using dogs. And that's um, selegiline or Anapro, that those are the names. So there is medication that we can do. Now, normally when we see these cases, by the time we start medication, it's been advanced already because, again, people miss the first stages of it and we start treating it way too late in life where we don't see like huge improvement. In some cases, I've seen great improvement, but especially if I catch it early, but if I catch it too late where they already really lost and gone in their minds, then it's really hard to reverse because you can't really reverse it. You yeah. can only hope that they respond some to the medication. That makes sense. And it makes sense that, you know, the average owner wouldn't notice because it's not like a human that could, that forgets things all the time, you know, and those little tiny signs, it's, you notice yeah. it when it's bad in dogs. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for one more question and that means we won't answer them all, but <laughs> we'll, we'll get one more in. Um, so somebody asks my second, um, dog from day two seems to strive for all the attention. If my first dog is right next to me, uh, my second dog will jump up and literally sit on top of us and try. So in general, dogs who try to like barge in, if, if an owner is petting or giving attention to one dog and the second dog, you know, tries to get into that and disrupt it and, and um, get the owner's attention back on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so that is common in dogs. I mean, it happens to a lot of families that have multiple animals where they're competing for a resource, which in this case is the owner's attention, which is probably the most valuable one. So it, it happens a lot. It's uh, for the for the lack of a better word, let's call it jealousy, or maybe just competition for a resource. Uh, so the best way to address that is to not correct the behavior, is to actually ignore that behavior. So when that dog is trying to jump on you or trying to compete or being inappropriate for getting attention, then the best thing to do is to just disengage from that dog, like stand up and walk away or turn your back or not let, you know, just block access to you. So you don't want to give any attention to that behavior because you're rewarding the behavior. So you want to definitely 
you know, disengage from that interaction and let the dog know that, okay, when you put your four paws on the ground and you sit in your appropriate, then I'm going to pat you, then you get my attention. So it's important for owners to recognize that punishing a behavior without teaching them what is appropriate doesn't work well. So mm -hmm. you ignore that behavior. And as soon as you see the behavior that you want, that is appropriate, then you give it attention. Then you reward it with either a treat or petting or, you know, so verbal, um, just verbal praise that works really well too. Yeah. And I can see how it's so easy for owners to feel like, what's wrong with my dog? Like what, you know, is he needing something? Is he feeling left out? And, and we don't really necessarily have to think of all the psychological reasons. It might just be the obvious, like I want attention too. And mm -hmm. our response is what determines if they're going to continue that, right? If we, if we turn and say, no, 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 then yeah. they've got it, right? Because they're pretty simple. Yeah, you're correct. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, just finally, is there anything that you think, I wish more dog owners knew this, or I wish more dog owners did this with their dogs? Anything, mm -hmm. Any final words? Yes. I wish more dog owners um, would look for a certified training that works, uh, trainer that works with positive reinforcement that understands canine psychology. That's what I wish first to start, you know, when they're puppies. And uh, I wish owners these days had realistic expectations from their dogs and don't label them anxious just because they bark at the window or because they chew on stuff around the house or, you know, because they're not being people, they're being dogs. So let dogs be dogs and that will work better than trying to change them or, you know, turn them into something that they cannot be, which is a human being. So that's what I think is like the root of a lot of the problems that we see these days. Thank you. Yes, that's so helpful. I so appreciate your time and taking a moment to like expand our knowledge about behaviorism um, and what vet behaviorists do and how you can help. Um, I will put a link to that book, the BAT book, in uh -huh. comments and um, I'll link to the CPDT database where people could find a trainer that's certified through that organization. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. I appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, let me know in the future when you want to chat again. Oh my goodness, I have so many follow-up questions. <laughs> you might be sorry you asked. <laughs> we can schedule another session for sure. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast. If you have any ideas or recommendations for future topics or guests, send me an email at admin at doodlekisses.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at doodlekisses.com. Also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or however you get your podcasts so you can have every episode ready to listen to as soon as it comes out. The show notes will link you to our GoFundMe page as well as links to some of the things we discussed in today's episode. Talk to you next time on the next episode of the Doodle Kisses podcast.